0: Hi, my name is Carolyn Crocker. Our reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Abraham said to his father, "Sorry." And Isaac said to his father Abraham, "My father." And he said, "Here I am, son." He said, "Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering?" Abraham said. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. 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 Let's pray one more time, but for us this time, say the kids. Dear God, we do offer ourselves to you as we heard Abraham offer his son, and we surrender to your will for us. You know, my brothers and sisters here, you know what they need this morning. And so, as a means of your grace, I offer myself and pray you would connect to them, that you would use their being here for your glory with them. Um, maybe it's through the sermon or the songs or something we do out in the foyer, someone remembers their name. Um, we ask you to watch over us and feed us here and gather us up to you. In your name, amen. Amen. Okay, let's try one more time. Amen. It's a little rainy. I know we're all a little groggy, right? All right, um, we're going to play a game, okay? And I'm going to ask you, if you can, during this game, to, to stand up. You're going to stand up and down a little bit, okay? We're going to play a game about what we have in common, okay? So things we have in common. So this week, so I'll say if, this week, if you did X, and then if you did it, you're going to stand up, okay? Not a hard game. You guys are super smart. Okay, this week, if you drank coffee, stand up. Can okay, I look around the room. How many people had coffee? Okay, so many. This Thursday was National Coffee Day. I hope, for sure, I hope you had some extra Thursday. Okay, go ahead and sit down. Okay, this week, this is not meant, it's a judgment call. It's just showing who, how we do stuff together. This, this week, if you exercise, I'll let you define what that meant for you. If you exercise in some way, shape, or form, stand up. Look, men, women, boys, girls, all shapes and sizes, excellent. Okay, you can sit down. You're getting exercise now, right? You're doing squats, you can count this later. Some of you, smartwatches, make it steps, go up and down really fast. Okay, this week, if you watch something on um, Amazon Prime, Netflix, or Disney Plus, stand up. Now, because we're not doing accountability, I'm not saying how many hours, I'm just saying if you did. Okay, again, look around, ages, shapes, sizes. Okay, please sit down. Okay, if you used a smartphone this week, stand up. Again, not asking for hours, you teenagers, you're welcome, okay, sit down, this week if you listen to a podcast, stand up, okay, okay, sit down, thank you, this week if you were on TikTok, stand up. Okay, I want you to turn around. These are the rock stars. I want you to turn around and look at these three lovely women who are up. Raise your hand if you thought they would be the people on TikTok. None of you did. This week, if you had to help a parent with their technology, stand up. Nice, nice. Maybe it was with TikTok or a podcast or a smartphone. Who knows? Okay, you can sit down. Look at all the things we have in common. Right, ages, men, women, boys, girls. Okay, here's another question. In your life, so not this week, but in your life, if you at some point have had to offer something to God that was really hard to offer, and I'll give you some examples before I ask you to stand. Something you had to offer that didn't make sense other than you had a relationship with God. So it could be you've done something during Lent, made no sense to anybody outside a relationship with God, or a job that you had or wanted that you offered to God, or a dream that you had to let go of. Maybe a relationship that you were in that you had to leave. Maybe a child that you have had to offer to God because they're older and they're out of your control. Okay, if you've done any, if you've ever had to offer something to God, maybe you're here and you've, you've tithed, you're, you're a young person, you're like, I'm, I'm giving three bucks of my summer earnings to God and I don't want to do it, but I'm doing it because it's right for God. If you've ever had to offer something to God those hard, would you stand? Okay, so again, just look around the room. Take in. It's not two people. It's not just the paid staff or the clergy. It's not people old or young. It's everybody represented in some way. Okay, so go ahead and sit down. So, so keep that, that group In your mind, because as we look at this passage this morning, Genesis 22, and the well-known text about Abraham and Isaac and the altar and offering, it might be easy to look at that text and say, this is crazy. What is happening here? Why is this in my Bible? But if you think about what is being asked of Abraham, it actually is not uncommon, and it makes a lot of sense. So if you can open a Bible, if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis 22. If we could put up the first slide of Genesis 22, that'd be great. Just those first like seven verses. The last couple of weeks in your study of Genesis have been big weeks. Last week, Johnny talked about Genesis 17 and circumcision, what it meant to be marked by God. This week, we're looking at Abraham and Isaac. I mean, these are pretty significant chapters. And you've been in this book, and I've been with you a lot during this series since early June, right? And I've said over and over again try to remind you, what is the goal of Genesis? Another way to think about it might be to ask, what problem is Genesis trying to solve? What we've said again and again is the author of Genesis, the authors are trying to help you place your trust in God when your immediate historical experience says otherwise. Over and over again, they are beckoning, inviting, inviting you to hold fast to God and trust in him no matter what. So in Genesis 22, what is happening? We've ramped to this really important chapter. Well, last week, Johnny read the first few verses of Genesis 21. Who remembers, he did it just at the end of his sermon, who remembers what happens in Genesis 21 that is really important? Isaac gets born. Isaac gets born. Abraham and Sarah have a baby. We've been waiting for that since Genesis 11. And we were told over and over again that Abraham and Sarah were barren throughout the 11 chapters since Genesis 11 up to Genesis 22. Genesis 21, they finally have a baby, this promise of God. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, "I will make you into a great nation." To be a great nation, you need two things. You need land and you need seed, you need descendants. Abraham has promised land in Genesis 12. Canaan, he's still wandering around Canaan. His sheep are growing, his goats are growing, his servants are growing, but his family's not growing. He knows where the land will be, but he hasn't possessed it yet, and he still doesn't have a child with Sarah. He has Ishmael, that's Genesis 16. That's problematic. We won't cover that. You guys have touched on that a little before. But in Genesis 21... Big things happen. In the first part, Abraham and Sarah, 100 years old, Abraham, 90 years old, Sarah, have a baby. Amazing. Sarah laughs. They name the baby laughter, but it's different than the laughter she had earlier when she heard she was going to be pregnant. That was sarcastic laughter that God heard, and then she said, no, you didn't hear me. By the way, that never works. (laughs) And now she's laughing overwhelmed, like real joyful laughter, so much so that she names the baby laughter. Then in Genesis 21, Ishmael and Hagar are sent out. That is a problem, not a problem,s not the right way, but that situation is sorted. God says to Abraham, "Yes, send them out, I will take care of him. Ishmael will be a great leader, have a great nation as well." That's a great story how God provides for Hagar and Ishmael. But that's sorted. And then at the end, the king around Abraham that they've had tension with before they make a treaty. So at the end of chapter 21, things are going pretty great. Abraham has obeyed in faith over and over again, right? Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. He's intimate with God. He has a son with Sarah. And there's peace. His immediate neighbor who could be a threat, they make, he comes to Abraham and says, let's make a, a treaty of peace between us. Things are super great at the end of chapter 21. He's sort of at a pinnacle of faith. He's 100 years old. He has a child. Things are at peace. Things are going great for Abraham. And then we come to Genesis 22, about 15 ish years later. Isaac's probably a teenager. And we see that those steps of faith that Abraham was invited to take, he gets to keep taking steps of faith. In fact, we'll find that the steps of faith he was taking were preparing him to take this step and to take other steps. He's been building muscles. What the narrator tells us is that God tests Abraham. Now that is a comforting word for those of us reading it. It assures us that God is not a proponent of filicide, of of parents killing their children. But guess who doesn't know that at the beginning of Genesis 22? Abraham, he doesn't know he's being tested. What he does know is he's being invited to obey in a way he never thought he'd be invited to obey. God is approaching Abraham like he does with us, like as you stood a minute ago in your own situations that you can remember and name. You're invited to a question of trust and worship. One scholar says this, the opening comment, God tested Abraham, warns the reader that the coming narrative will strain Abraham's faith and obedience to the uttermost. I think that verb is so great there. It's going to strain his faith to the uttermost in order to reveal his deepest emotional attachment. Is he willing to love God with all his heart, all his mind, and all his soul? Think back again to maybe the The situation, why you stood when I said if you had to offer something, and did it feel like your your faith and your trust and your call to obedience were being strained? I can think of things in my life for sure. It felt like I was being strained. Remember, he's 115 years old. He's kind of done a lot of things, but he has not arrived yet in his life with the Lord. This is an unexpected test. We've all been waiting, right? He needs a seed. He needs a kid. This doesn't make rational sense. Both Martin Luther and John Calvin say, here it seems like God is conflicted. And what he's asking of Abraham is conflicted. And then these next verses are so beautifully told, but they're painful. I find them painful to read. The narrator pulls us in, as one scholar says, almost with a slow-motion camera. We can see all the different steps, the packing of the donkey, the three-day journey. A three-day journey was considered the length of a journey, the length of days you needed for something to be completed. You can just hold that till we get to Holy Week, and we'll talk about that, right? But this time for something to be finished, the hike toward Moriah, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, leaving the servants. Going up the hill, Isaac's question, Abraham's answer, putting and building the altar, binding Isaac on the altar, pulling out the knife. That, for me, frankly, is too much seen. And you all know me well enough to know I love narrative, right, whenever I'm here. But, oh, I don't like that. Here's what I would have liked the text to say. Abraham took Isaac, and he passed God's test, and a lamb was provided, and Isaac wasn't sacrificed. I don't need to hear 10 times that this is Abraham's son. I know that. I have two sons. I don't need to hear that over and over again. We get this beautiful little window into the agony in Abraham's, um, in in the narrator telling us what Abraham's doing. It's in the slide I have up. What's the little beautiful poetic touch that the narrator says that lets you know Abraham's mind is overwhelmed? You're going to offer your son. Let's say you're going to pack your van to do this. You're a father here, and God has told you to do this with your son, and you pack the van, and you're about to leave. What did Abraham pack by accident last? The wood. He packs the donkey, and then the text tells, oh, then he goes back and gets the wood. I would have, maybe If I forget the wood, maybe God... Doesn't make me do it. Maybe, who knows? But he attacks the wood last. The theological center of this text is verse eight, which is Isaac saying, behold, where's the lamb? And Abraham answers, God will provide. That answer is the center. One pastor says, named Kent Hughes says, God will provide for himself is the turning point of the story. Because it states Abraham's fundamental trust in God but also allows for God to be God. It states Abraham's trust in God but also allows for God to be God. Why does Abraham do this? Why? One way is because in his own life he has trusted again and again and he has seen already resurrection. He has seen that God is in the business of bringing life from death. This is how Hebrews 11 helps us know more about Abraham's life. This is Hebrews 11:17 17 and forward. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. James tells us that Abraham fathered a child with Sarah who, quote, was as good as dead. He's 100, she's 90. God's asking me to do this. It doesn't make sense, but I've seen him bring life from seeming death before. And matter of fact, it seems to me that's the business God is in. So I will trust and I will obey. And God does provide, right? The angel comes and stays the hand of Abraham. And there's a lamb, and they sacrifice the lamb, and they worship, and the promises are renewed and expanded, and literally that obedience trickles down to you and me. Praise the Lord, he obeyed, because you and I wouldn't be here if he hadn't done that. This is a beautiful passage. It's super intense. I find it a little bit exhausting, frankly, to have been in it this week. But... Can it help us now? Yes. And I'd like to highlight three particular ways. First, this passage reminds us that in a robust life of faith, a lifelong journey with God, you and I will all have chances to put Isaacs on the altar. Again, you saw it in your own standing up, all ages. None of us have arrived. In fact, two of the three texts for morning prayer this morning, two of the three in the Anglican Rite of Morning Prayer Talk about God testing either Israel or the New Testament church in 1 Peter. Many of you probably saw that one of our our international church heroes, Brother Andrew, passed away this week. If you're not familiar with Brother Andrew, I'd encourage you to just go online. Brother Andrew, God Smuggler. If you haven't read his book, God Smuggler, you should. But this was a, a Dutch man who gave his life to the Lord and smuggled Bibles all over the world behind the Iron Curtain, particularly first within his organization, Open Doors, continues to smuggle Bibles all over the world. Why? Because he offered his life literally to God over and over again as he drove to border checks where if they found Bibles, he'd be arrested and his hidden, hidden in his Volkswagen Beetle initially. Over and over again. Some of you are probably familiar, and I bet we've all sung, worship, worship music by the Vineyard, which started back with a man named John Wimber. And if you know John Wimber's story, you know he's a a musician, gifted musician, trying to make it in the music industry, met Jesus and felt like Jesus was telling him to give all his music to the Lord. So he took and literally threw out his music. And his wife said, at that moment, vineyard music was born when he threw it all out. Yesterday, I had a chance to be with one of my life heroes at the memorial service for the funeral for a man named Paul Kikoulas. Paul and um, Carolyn Kikoulas are longtime members of Fourth Presbyterian Church across the river. And if you know that church, you know Mr. K. Everybody knew Mr. K. He passed away in August at the age of 98. He was a world-recognized patent attorney who loved people, especially teenagers. And he was a lifelong friend of my parents. And he started, Mr. and Mrs. K in Potomac, started inviting teenagers into their house on Friday nights in the 60s. And they did it. I kept trying to come up with a number for my wife, and the number kept going. Probably 50 years. Literally tens of thousands of high school kids spent Friday nights in their house. And the number of kids who never knew Jesus but first tasted the love of Jesus because of Mr. K, it's uncountable. So they had five people share yesterday about Mr. K, remembrances. Literally three of the five met him first in his house as a teenager lots of them are 70 80 high 60s and they tell these stories over and over again and two of them told the story the anecdote of back in the 60s when they were, the case the would have these kids in and they offered up their house right they knew kids are going to track in mud there's going to be food everywhere they might break stuff Anybody familiar with Jim Byrne, who used to be the youth pastor of the Falls Church? Okay, Jim Byrne knows the Lord because of the cool- coolest. And if you've ever heard Jim tell the story of when he broke a window at someone's house who then showed him the love of Jesus and stunned Jim, that was Mr. K. So one Saturday morning, they're cleaning up. This is a story two people told yesterday. And Mr. K looks at his wife and says, is this worth it? And she looks at him and says, well, I guess it depends on who you're doing it for. That was like 1969. They kept doing it for at least 30 more years. And when they did that in 1969, because I know their kids, I was sitting there last night, yesterday and I thought, four, their kids were all 10 and under. These are just a young couple in their mid to late 30s with four kids, nine, 10 and under. And they're offering up their house to the Lord. You and I, if we walk with Jesus are all going to have a chance to offer things to the Lord. The little things we do that might that are, that are, we look back and they might seem little are huge at the time and they keep preparing us for what God asks us to do next. And when the same question is begged of us that it is of Abraham or Mr. and Mrs. K, do I believe God can provide? Who am I doing this for? Can God bring life from death? What happens is this, this tension, what we realize of testing and provision is actually a precursor to what we do see with Jesus and in holy Week, which is crucifixion and resurrection. Walter Brueggemann says this, the dialectic, the tension of testing and providing in our narrative, becomes the dialectic crucifixion and resurrection in the faith of the church. What we believe is that God can bring life from death and he does it all the time. So then the real pinnacle of you're in my life with God is Genesis 22, not Genesis 21, as great as Genesis 21 is. Birth of kids, there's a treaty. One scholar I read this week had this great line. What is at risk in Genesis 22 is not Isaac's life, but Abraham's life with God. So when you and I are confronted with those opportunities, that's what's at risk. So, Abraham reminds us, you and I, if we live with God, we'll have a chance over and over again to offer things and offer ourselves to the Lord in worship. Time, money, plans, people. Second then, obedience in those offering seasons is hard. It's really hard. It's lonely hard. It's that slow motion camera hard. It's not like, oh, I went to Trader Joe's and they're out of my ice cream hard. It's like I'm being asked to give this thing that really matters my son, my only son. So how do we do that then? There are three lovely tips here in this passage from Abraham. First, you and I should pray again and again. Here I am. Here I am. Abraham says it three different times, twice to God and once to Isaac in the text. He kept saying it. And it's a lovely statement about his life, his faith. What's Abraham like? He should have had a shirt. Here I am. Because that's all he knew to do. When God came to test him, here I am. He didn't know what God was going to say. If God called me and I knew he was saying, offer up my son, I'd be like, I'm out. Oh, no coverage, nothing. My Wi-Fi's down, something. Here I am is what he said over and over. And then he surrendered himself to what God wanted. John Calvin had the best sentence maybe for the whole study I did this week on this. He said, we pay God the highest honor when in affairs of perplexity, we nevertheless... Calvin was not an emotional man, so I should not be laughing, crying during this quote. When in affairs of perplexity, we nevertheless entirely acquiesce to his providence. Some of you may be here this morning in in what you would say an affair of perplexity. With a job, a loved one, with college hopes as you're doing your senior year, with your finances. You may be here still exploring who God is and you came with a friend and you're like, I don't know what this means. And We see again and again, here I am, here I am, here I am. Sometimes all the best thing you can do is pray that again and again and again. So that's tip number one. The second thing is whether you're in that season or not, build altars. What Abraham is doing in Genesis 12, we have seen him do again and again and again since Genesis 12. He's doing it in Genesis 22 because he he's, has a habit and a pattern of when I meet with God, I offer him myself. I go and I spend time and I offer myself with God in the big things and the little things. So I'm ready. If you are not building altars, I would encourage you to do that. And if you're not sure how to do that, ask Johnny, ask me, ask Corky, ask Rod. The third thing is, again, remember the room. Remember when you stood and looked around, other people have done this too. If you're in a place right now that is, again, an affair of perplexity, you are not alone. It's an important reminder of why community matters. Maybe you're in an affair right now and you saw somebody stand and you know them and you can go and say, can you tell me what it was like for you? Can you pray for me because I'm in this place? Because roughly 90% of the people in the room stood up and the other 10 probably could have. So it's a part of faith. It's a life of faith you and I'll be asked to offer. Obedience is hard and Abraham gives us tips. And then third and last, in those seasons, most importantly, God is there to provide and be with you. How many of you remember back when we did Genesis 1 and 2, and then 2 and 3 in in late July, early August, I talked about God's names in those chapters and how in Genesis 1, we get one name of God, God Elohim over creation, and then in Genesis 2, we get God of the covenant down in with his people. And how important it was to catch those names because both those things matter, right? Well, guess what? In this chapter, both names are being used. In the first part, when God goes to test Abraham, we get Elohim. God is over, God is sovereign. But when it gets hard and in that slow motion camera and when the knife is in the air and the lamb is in the thicket, guess what name of God is being used there? God in with his covenant people because what he's doing is affirming his covenant with Abraham in a deeper way, just like he affirms it to you in a deeper way when you make those same kind of offerings. Guess what? In the end, our narrative is perhaps not about Abraham being found faithful. It is about God being found faithful. This again is Walter Brueggemann. What problem is Genesis trying to solve? Are they giving us examples of faith in Abraham? Yes, but the deeper problem that Genesis is solving is inviting you, beckoning you, to trust in the same God. I'd actually like to propose that we change the name of this paragraph. I'll give you permission in your Bibles. I looked at Johnny's ESV this morning. I'm sure mine and the NIV and others do the same thing. We often name this paragraph what? Abraham sacrifices Isaac. Which is true and it is happening. But guess what? I think we ought to call it God provides the lamb. Because the hero of the story the deeper hero is God. What is being invited is for you to offer and trust God, not yourself. Abraham didn't find the lamb. If you ask Mr. and Mrs. K about their life story, it wouldn't be, look how great we are and the house we offered. It would be, look what God did for us. If you ask Brother Andrew, and you can see this in the, in the obituaries that came out this week about him. What he would say is not, look at the great things I did taking Bibles all over. Look what God did when I took Bibles and tried to take Bibles places he wasn't supposed to go. Abraham did not fail to believe God's promises in spite of contrary visual evidence. This is Bruce Walkie. He did not fail to believe God's promises in spite of contrary visual evidence. I've said this to you since June you and I will have places in life where it looks like God is not there. Or it might feel conflicting what he's asking you to do. Or it doesn't make any sense to your friends who know God or even your friends who do know God. And yet you know it's what God is asking you to do. God tests his saints through adversity or hardship to prove the quality of their faith, to remind you he brings life from death and that you can trust him and that is the best life possible. So can we finish with something a little more vulnerable? If you are here and you are, are in a particular affair of perplexity, I'm gonna close in prayer. And would you be willing just to stand up? And some, as I close, if people would just extend their hand towards those people. You don't have to. You might just wanna sit. I'm still gonna pray for you. I don't know you all. But some of you might be here feeling like, I am in a place like that, and it is frankly way too hard for me to handle my own. So let's pray. If you feel comfortable, please stand. And folks near you might just stretch a hand out. Dear God, if we had time, we could talk about so many lambs that you have provided in thickets for the people here. And I lift them up. These are our brothers and sisters. They are struggling. They are publicly saying things are too hard. We pray you would extend your help to them, that they would know. Your provision, they would know both your names. You would give them hope, stories to tell, songs to sing. And like Sarah, laughter from the joy you bring. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.